Have you ever just needed to get away? Ever need a little rest and relaxation? Just somewhere to hang out for a little while, be away from everything going on in the world. Maybe you just need to, to disappear for a little bit. Well, the Boston Globe newspaper made a man disappear on July 14th. Now, not July 14th this past Tuesday, but July 14th, 1899. This past week, Hillary Sargent pulled out a story, a 116-year-old story of a guy named John Forbes. John was a young reporter who was getting ready to start a new job at the Boston Globe. And the paper thought they'd have some fun with his arrival, and so they turned his arrival into a contest and made him a missing man. On the front page of the paper, they put all this information about him, his, his height, his weight, his age. They even had a, a detailed artist rendering of exactly what John Forbes looked like. And the way it was supposed to work is, is that John Forbes would walk all over Boston, all out, wide open in the public. And for one week's time, the public had an opportunity to see if they could spot John Forbes and, and go up and figure out that it was him. Now, if they were able to do that, then they would win $50. Now, in today's money, that would be about $1,500. So all of this is set in motion, and John Forbes shows up. His paper's been on the front page. His picture's been on the front page, and now he just wanders all over Boston. So what did he do on his very first day? Well, Sergeant records from Forbes Journal that this is what he did. He ate breakfast in a Boston restaurant. He visited several hotels. He rode a streetcar to Lynn. He took a ferry from East Boston. He went to the post office. He ate lunch back in Boston. He visited three jewelry stores. He took in a show at the Palace Theater. He hung out in Malden, ate dinner in Charlestown, asked police officers for directions, and so on. And that guy really got around, right? Now, naturally, there were some false alarms in this story. Some people thought they saw John Forbes, and they'd go up, and it wouldn't be him. In fact, on the first day, nobody recognized John Forbes anywhere. And on the second day, nobody recognized John Forbes anywhere. He was wide open in public all over the place, but nobody recognized him on the first day or the second day. On the third day, at 11.58 a.m., 15-year-old Edward Howe walked up to the young reporter and said, Say, aren't you that John Forbes guy? And sure enough, it was. And so that 15-year-old got 50 bucks, which according to the, the report, he said he was going to put in the bank. So he was a smart 15-year-old as well. Now, some people during those first two days said, hey, this is impossible. I mean, there's no way anybody can, can find this guy. And, and maybe they're right. I mean, if you think about it, looking at the numbers, during this time, there were more than 500,000 people that lived in the Boston area. And if we look at statistics from newspaper circulation during that time, we could take a guesstimate that maybe about 5,000 people were able to see this front page news on John Forbes. So you think 5,000 out of 500,000 plus, it's not exactly a needle in a haystack, but it kind of a skittle in a case of M&M's maybe. It's a little bit of a picture. And so maybe it was something impossible. Maybe, maybe Edward, the 15-year-old, pulled off a miracle in finding John Forbes. 
But just for fun, let's kind of bring this into today. Suppose that this week in the Midlands, we had a similar contest, but we used social media. And there's $1,500 on the line. Don't you think that if about 5,000 people got wind of this and saw the picture, that those 5,000 people, one of them would find that joker in three days or less? I'm thinking with that kind of money on the line, they might. So we don't know if it was a miracle or if it was just a, a really neat story. But either way, this picture from 1899 is a bit fascinating. You have a guy who was publicly identified. He was publicly identified for the purpose of the public finding him so that they could win a prize. And he spent all of his time walking around out in the broad daylight of the public. Now, let's bring that home a little closer. Imagine that we profess and proclaim and promote ourselves to be a Christian on Sunday morning. And then all week long, we parade in the broad daylight of the public. But the public may not be able to see or recognize us as a Christian at all. Ouch, right? <laughs> it's kind of heavy. But there's some truth to how the Bible is always pushing us toward living out our faith. So if somebody can't recognize us as a Christian, does that mean we should wear more Christian t-shirts and we should put more Christian bumper stickers on our car or we should put a, a flagpole in our front yard and put up a Christian flag? Not really. That's not the picture here. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther said this, The Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. You see, the gospel doesn't call us just to promote that we are a Christian with our words. It doesn't just call us to promote that we're a Christian with T-shirts or bumper stickers or even flags. But the gospel calls us to actually be a Christian, to walk in the words and the ways of Jesus Christ. That when we begin to define our identity, our primary identity is not our family. And our primary identity is not our job. And our primary identity is not our country. And our primary identity is not our favorite sports team. But the gospel calls us to make Jesus our primary identity. That our Christianity is primarily who we are. That we would actually be a good Christian. So how do we do that? Well, Paul's going to help us. Look with me at Titus 2, beginning with verse 7. Paul writes this, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Now, Paul has been writing to Titus. He's been trying to help Titus see how he can help others love Jesus and live for Jesus. So he's been given some advice. And so he's giving some advice for older men and older women and younger men and younger women. And we've looked at that in these last few weeks. Now, today and here, he's going to give advice to Titus, directly to Titus. Now, Titus was probably somewhere in his 30s. And as a young man, he was the leader over a pretty good crowd of Christians on the island of Crete. So why would Paul be giving advice to a church leader? Wouldn't the church leader have all the advice that he needed? Well, you've heard me say this phrase before. You'll hear it again. It's from a missions conference in the late 1980s, and it's this. We cannot preach good news and be bad news. 
We cannot preach good news and be bad news. Now, I just passed uh, my eight-month mark serving at Holland Avenue here just a couple of weeks ago. And in case you didn't get the memo, I am not perfect. I don't know if you didn't know that or not, just making sure. Uh, I will make lots of mistakes. I may not live up to some of your expectations of what I should be. But the truth of the matter is I cannot preach good news and be bad news. In other words, I can't preach the good news of the gospel week in and week out and live in a way that is completely opposite of that message. There has to be some consistency. But that's not just for me, right? I mean, that's just not something the preacher has to do. You see, the reality is that kind of spreads out. There needs to be some trickle-down economics in the church, for lack of a better word. You see, I should be living out the gospel and loving the gospel, and that should trickle down into your life, and then you should be living out the gospel and loving the gospel, and that should be trickling out into the life of your family and your friends and those you have influence. In other words, in case you didn't know this, everyone in this room is a preacher. (laughs) All of us. We are all preaching sermons every single day. So Paul's advice here is directed toward Titus as a young church leader. But the reality is the principles that he gives are for all of us. All of us who claim to follow Jesus. So what kind of advice does he give? Well, look what he says there. He says he has to be an example of good deeds. This word here for example comes from a word that means making an impression with blows like you would with a hammer. So that means you should take a hammer this week and just go you know, beat people in the head until they start following Jesus, right? That's, that's what all this means. No, that's not what it means. What it means is this. When I was a kid, I loved playing with Hot Wheels cars and Matchbox cars. Man, I loved it. And I would have all these cars and line them up and play with them and have a great time. But when I got a new one, the front of the package always said the same thing. It said, die cast metal. And what that meant was, was that that car had been made from a mold that was used with the die-casting method of creating molds. And I'm not going to go into all the die-casting method of molds, but let me just put it this way. That means that when I went to the store and I bought a, you know, a little toy Mustang or a, a toy Ferrari, that if some kid in Topeka, Kansas bought the same Mustang and the same car, they would be pretty much the same. If I bought the Matchbox Mustang and he bought the Matchbox Mustang, they would be about the same. Why? Well, they were made out of the same mold. They're almost the exact same car because they were made out of the same mold. Now, back in the day, there weren't always our modern ways of making molds. And so literally, in ancient times, the mold had to be made by hammer. You had to to take it and you had to hammer out. Like if you were making a sword and you would hammer out this mold and then you would use that mold to make all the swords exactly the same, so to speak. So Paul's writing to Titus and he says, look, the pastor, the leader of the church needs to, to be a mold for the church. Now, does that mean that y'all are all supposed to be made in the image of me? No. I mean, some of y'all have great, great, great hair. So if you were made in my mold, you'd lose all of that hair, at least sometime in the next five to ten years. So no, you're not supposed to be just in my mold. It means here there's just supposed to be a pattern. There's supposed to be something that you can go by, something that you can look to as, hey, this is an idea of what I need to do. And the pattern that Paul gives here, the pattern that he gives to us that we should set and we should follow is a pattern of good deeds. 
Now, we know what good deeds are, right? It's benefiting people, doing something that's good for others. We know what good deeds look like in real life. We make a casserole and take it to a family. Somebody at the church who's had a baby or somebody who's been sick, you know, we, we minister to them. You know, maybe we take some clothes that we haven't worn in a long time and we, you know, drop them off by the local rescue shelter so they can be given to somebody else. Maybe we donate money to a charity that we volunteer at here in the community. Or maybe we ask one of our neighbors if they can borrow, or we can borrow one of their tools or we let them borrow one of our tools. We, we know the idea behind good deeds and what that looks like. But the gospel actually calls us to a deeper level of good deeds. Jesus was teaching his disciples one day, and this is what he said to them in Luke chapter 6. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But this is what Jesus said to them. But you, you love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That sounds a little more than just doing a good deed of the day, right? I mean, in fact, if we take these words from Jesus and put it back in the list that we just used a moment ago, that list may sound a little different, right? The list may mean that we take a meal to the family of the man who was arrested for stealing from our home or our business. If we look at these words from Jesus, it means that we might donate money to an orphanage in Guatemala or Uganda or Russia, and we may never volunteer there, and we may never see what that money does. If we look at these words from Jesus, it may mean that we go to a store and buy brand new clothes and then take them down to the rescue shelter. If we look at these words from Jesus, it means that our neighbor might become anybody, no matter their age, no matter their gender, no matter their race, no matter how much money they have or whether or not they have a job. You see, the words that Jesus calls to are always farther than how we're thinking. See, there are good deeds, and then there are gospel good deeds. Good deeds are good things, but gospel good deeds are always a way for the attention to be drawn to the kindness and the grace of God. You see, God is kind to ungrateful and evil people, and that's a good thing, because if God was not kind to ungrateful and evil people, then nobody would ever be Christian. Nobody. But see, the message of the cross is here is love. Here is a way to escape the curse of sin. Here is grace and kindness that is undeserved, and it is here for you. Paul says we need to be an example of gospel-centered good deeds. And he says the only time that we have to do gospel-centered good deeds is on Sunday morning at church. That's it. That's the only time we have to do it, right? 
Now look what he says in verse 7. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Man, it's kind of setting the bar high, right? In all things, I have to be an example of good deeds. I mean, does that mean I have to be perfect? No, because it's not possible to be perfect. So what does it mean? Well, let me illustrate this in a way that might offend most of us, I would think. Imagine that one Saturday, you're at the stadium, and you are there cheering on your favorite team, and you are saying one awful thing after another, maybe even using awful language, shouting and screaming consistently mean awful unchristian things at the opposing team or the opposing coach or the opposing fans. And then the next morning you roll out, put on your Sunday best, and you go sit in church and you smile and you sing about passing the love of Jesus on to other people. A little bit of a disconnect, right? Now, I'm not saying you can't go cheer passionately for your team or, or the team that your child plays on. I'm not saying that we can't be passionate about cheering. But I am saying this, the, the gospel, the very nature of what it means to be saved, means that there's really never a time or an area that we get to turn and say, you know what, Jesus, sorry, you, you can't come in here. Th- this is actually... Jesus, this is my thing here. This is, this is my little place. This is, this is kind of this thing that, that I do, kind of, you know, away from church. You know, sir, Jesus, this is my, my man cave away from church. This is my she shed in the backyard that's away from church. And this is that area that, ah, you know, Jesus, you, you just, mm, I probably just need you to stay away. See, that's just not how the gospel works. That's not how salvation works. Salvation in Jesus Christ is designed in such a way that it is supposed to take over our whole lives. It's supposed to be in all things that we are. And so our good deeds are not just something that we can do momentarily on Sunday morning. And if that's true, which it is, that means this, that on any given Sunday, including today, that if the gospel is supposed to be a part of all things in our life, then that means that we all have some things we'll need to change this week. So we can't be the same when we come back next week because the gospel pushes us away from that. It pushes us toward the grace of God and toward following Jesus in a deeper way. J. Hampton Keithley says something very interesting about what it means to have good deeds that go beyond Sunday morning. He says this, Actually, I'm going to save that because it doesn't fit here because I looked ahead in my notes. (laughs) So that's why I'm not going to use it. Paul gives one more detail to how it means that we need to have good deeds, and he says in verse 7 that we need to have good deeds that are full of purity and doctrine. Remember the definition we used just a few weeks ago about what it means to have sound doctrine? It was from Bobby Jameson, and it goes like this. Sound doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible and useful for life. So sound doctrine is understanding the message of the Bible, and then you take that message and you live it out in how you think and how you act and how you talk and how you live. And so our good deeds have to have good doctrine, but Paul specifically says pure doctrine here. So what is pure doctrine? Well, pure doctrine is doctrine that's not corrupt. What does it mean to not be corrupt? 
Well, maybe in the simplest way I could put it. It means that when you're doing a good deed, the purpose of the good deed is for God to get attention. The purpose of the good deed is that the grace of God would get attention. The purpose of benefiting someone's life is so that that person might see and hear and know and find out that Jesus saves. That's what it means to have purity and doctrine in our good deeds. It means it's not corrupted with anything other than the gospel. Keithley said this, So often I see church leaders exhorting and preaching about good works and changed lifestyles, but without a balanced diet of sound doctrine that teaches and promotes spiritual health by a walk in the Spirit and a life in the Word. And listen to this next part. As a result, their exhortations often lead to gimmicks of manipulation and coercion in order to see things happen in their congregations. That's a big sentence. And what it means is this. Purity in doctrine does not say, hey, this will be good publicity for our church. Purity in doctrine does not say, hey, this will really get our pastor's name out in the community. Purity in doctrine does not say, this is a great way for us to draw a crowd on Sunday mornings. There's nothing evil about any of those things. But purity in doctrine says, we're doing this because it honors God, period. No other connections. We're pursuing this because this will bring attention to God. That's what it means to be pure and uncorrupted in our doctrine. Paul says our good deeds need to have purity. It needs to have good doctrine. Our message, our doctrine, our attitude, our opinions, they need to be marked with purity. Next, he says our good needs need to be marked by being dignified. We've seen this word in the last few weeks. Dignified, it means that you're serious about the things of God and you're serious about the important things in life. doesn't mean that you don't know how to have fun. You know how to have fun. But the reality is you understand the moments you're supposed to be serious and you are very serious when it comes to the things of God. The ancient teacher Aristotle had a very interesting way of defining the word dignity. He said, It is the average of a virtue that lies between the extremes of arrogance on one hand and attempting to please everyone on the other hand. That's a great picture. It means that when we do our good deeds, our primary motivation in doing good deeds is not because we think we're a good person. Or maybe you would say, well, I would never think that I'm a good person. All right, let me reword that. That you would not do the good deed thinking, well, I'm better than my greedy boss or my nosy neighbor. You You wouldn't do the good deed because you think you're being a good person. And then the other end of the extreme is similar. You wouldn't do the good deed because you want people to think well of yourselves. The reality is, most of the time, if we're honest with ourselves, that's that's usually why sometimes we do good deeds. We want people to think well of us. Like Aristotle's right. We don't go to either one of those extremes, but we, we walk in the middle. We meet somewhere in the middle, and we do our good deeds with dignity. What does that mean? It means that when it comes to our good deeds, we have two things. That's it. Just two things that we're focused on. But it has to be both. Does this honor God, and is this beneficial to somebody? That's it. You can't do one or the other. Because there's lots of things that are beneficial. There's a lot of good deeds that have nothing to do with honoring God. But as believers, when we do a good deed with dignity, we ask those two questions. Does this honor God, and is this beneficial to another person? Paul says our good deeds need to be marked with purity and doctrine, and they need to be marked with dignity. And then he gives us one more thing in verse 8. They need to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. 
This word for sound is used in the Bible about 17 times. And one of those times is in Matthew's Gospel. And he writes about a a moment when Jesus was healing a man. There was a, a man who had a crippled hand. And Jesus turned to the man, and this is what Matthew records in chapter 12, verse 13. Jesus said, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal. It was restored to normal, meaning it was made sound. It's the same word there. And so Jesus was sound in speech in this moment. He said, be healed, and the guy was healed. Jesus' words were backed up with his actions. There was a consistency to the two. Now, again, we can't just walk around you know, healing people. But the picture here is pretty strong. The question is this. Is it possible on any given day that the average person, if they would have some amount of interaction with you, would have an easy time figuring out that you are a Christian? Or do the rest of us have to be on edge because we're going to hear somebody say, she's in your Sunday school class? He's a member of your church? See, that's what we don't want to be said about any of us. It's not perfection. It's just that our words and our actions match. There's a a soundness to what we say and what we do. We say we believe this, and then our behavior matches what we say we believe. The two have to match. If they don't, then we're not above reproach. What does it mean to not be above reproach? I remember when I first started out, I think I was still a youth pastor at the time, I remember feeling like that when I read above reproach, it was like, you got to do everything right. Oh, man, i got to be perfect. No, because if this is about being perfect, then nobody would ever be above reproach. So it's not about perfection. Here in particular, it's making sure that you're not someone who, in your words, is going to distract people from Jesus. In other words, that the way that you speak and the way that you act is consistent with being a good thing that draws people to Jesus. Now, let me make that a little more practical. It means that being above reproach means you're not the person that's always talking about church politics or church traditions or church fads. It means that you're not the person that everybody can count on to always have something sarcastic to say about everything. Listen, everything in life is not a joke. Everything in life is not a reason to cut on somebody or to needle somebody or to give them a hard time. It's just not. I think sometimes we forget that the gospel calls us to think differently, to talk differently. So if we are going to reach people for Jesus, then we need to dial down the sarcasm. We need to dial down the constant joking and needling. I know, every party has a pooper. That's why we invited Dow. That's fine. I got it. I got it. But there's a tremendous amount of truth in these words. This is what Paul said to the church at Ephesus. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That's a verse we need to tattoo on our brains. It is just that important. And here's why. We live in a dark evil world. We live in a world where five of our military personnel just doing their job lose their lives. 
We live in a world where on any given day there is tragedy in the news. On any given day we hear evil things happening even right here in our community. We live in a world where home can be hard and marriage is tough and we struggle with our kids and our kids struggle with this culture. Parents, you may think that your kids are doing great and fine, but they struggle like all the rest of us. The world presses in on them. Darkness is pressing in on us. We need grace. We need hope. We need encouragement. If there is ever a place in this dark and evil and sinful and discouraging world that we would find encouragement, it should be the church. The church should be the place that we are encouraged. The church should not be marked by constant sarcasm and jokes. We should outdo one another in our casual conversations to encourage one another. Whether we're in the sanctuary, whether we're at Sunday school, whether we're at the ballpark, whether we're at kicking chicken, whether we're at homecoming, whether it's Easter, Christmas, the middle of the summer, no matter what it is that's going on, this needs to be a place that we can come and be encouraged with the gospel. You know why? Because we need it. We need it. We should be a great community of grace. People need to be able to come and feel the grace of God in our conversation. And again, as I said earlier, that means that some of us will have to make some changes this week. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll just have to steer the ship a little bit different in how we're speaking to our wives and our kids and, and fellow church members and maybe people at work. Because it's a dark world and, and we have the gospel and we need to take grace into this dark world. Richard DeHaan gives some great questions for us to consider when we think about how we talk on any given day. He says, what is the subject of most of your discussions? Do you talk too much? Do you not give opportunity for others to speak? Is your speech profitable to others? And do your words glorify God? Most of y'all know, especially if you come on Wednesday night, that if you're out in a restaurant and I'm there, you better watch out because I can hear you. I don't care where I'm sitting, I'll hear you. I hear the most interesting conversations in every place that I eat all week long. And I've joked with y'all before, it never fails that at some point in time, one of the most non-Christian, colorful conversations that might be happening in the room suddenly will end this way. All right, guys, see y'all at church on Sunday. (laughs) That's not how it needs to be. We need to be the kind of people that when we leave on Sunday mornings, we have been at a place where we've encouraged each other toward Jesus, and then we go with Jesus when we leave to encourage a lost and dark and dying world. It's a great privilege we have. It's not a burden. It's a joy that we would be a great community of grace. And why is that so important? Well, Paul gives us another reason. Look at the last part of verse 8. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Listen, living for Jesus doesn't mean that you're never going to be criticized or that you're never going to be mocked or that you're not going to be hated. But... Are you being criticized and mocked and hated because you're being a rude religious fundamentalist jerk? Or are you being criticized, mocked, and hated because you're actually really making a big deal out of Jesus and trying to share his ways? You see, there is a difference in those two things. 
this scene when Jesus was trying to, or when Jesus healed the crippled man. See, there were people in that scene that were waiting to call Jesus a phony. They were waiting to mock him. They were waiting to criticize him. But then something happened. He was sound in speech. His words were backed up by his actions. And so they couldn't say anything. I mean, if they said something, they'd look like complete fools, right? Because the guy actually got healed. In other words, if they had tried to mock Jesus, they would have been put to shame because what they said would actually not be true. See, that's the the call of the gospel in our lives, that our good deeds are designed to be pure in doctrine and dignified and sound in speech, not so that we can be important, but so that there's never a time that somebody can say, that guy, that gal, they said the wrong thing about Jesus. But there is a consistency in what we say and what we do. Again, the lesson here is not for us to leave this week and dramatically put our hands on people's foreheads and try to heal them of their crippling things. That's not what we're supposed to do. But what we are supposed to do is this. If we profess to be a Christian, then how we live needs, needs to match. There needs to be some consistency in those two things. Let me tell you a, a story I read about a church that I think really illustrates this pretty dramatically. A church was building a new sanctuary And the architect had finished all the designs, everything was put together, and they took the designs and they went out in the neighborhood. You see, they were building their church on this piece of land that was in the middle of a neighborhood. And so they went out to the neighborhood and they showed all the neighbors their church plans and just wanted to say, hey, would this be okay? You know, would y'all be offended by this? Would this be all right? Something that you would be okay with in the community. And sure enough, none of the neighbors really had anything to say. But a few months later, right before construction was supposed to start, some folks in the church found out that one of the neighbors had a a concern. He wasn't making a big deal about it. He wasn't wasn't talking about it all over the place. He He was concerned, though, that the height of the roof of the sanctuary was going to completely block the sunlight from his house and his yard. So you know what the church did? Well, they could have grumbled. They could have complained. They could have said, look, buddy, you had your chance four months ago. Tough. They could have made a really big deal out of it and said, look, man, this is is what we're doing. We bought the land. We pay them for the building. We'll we'll do whatever we want. But it's not what they did. What they did was they went back to the architect and at an increased cost to them, they said, is there any way you could figure out a way to, to lower that roof? When the neighbor found out that the church had gone this dramatic extra mile to make sure that he would not be blocked from the sunlight, needless to say, he was pleasantly surprised and encouraged. Listen, as believers, as Christians, we have the one true great light of the world. We don't have just the the sunlight. We have the actual Son of God. And so in our deeds and in our doctrine, in our message and our opinions and our attitudes, we need to be the people that we do everything we can to make sure that we are not blocking people from the light, but that we are helping them see the light of Jesus Christ. Maybe put it in the simplest terms that I can. We need to strive day and night to live just like the song of a child. This little light of mine, I am going to let it shine.
Let's pray.